is it Kurebi or Khurebi or it's, what do you prefer? Uh, I'm I'm honestly I'm I'm, I'm yeah, easy with both. So I, I, when I introduce myself to people in Canada, I'm yeah. Kurebi, <laughs> and when I'm here, it's Kurebi. It really depends who, who I'm talking to. Yeah. Uh, for no other reason, it's just the way I've kind of been. You know, I grew up in Toronto, then yeah. I moved here, and 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 that's just uh, I think just a function of of me as well, right? Like it's a function work. of being an entrepreneur, right? Yeah. Adaptability. <laughs> yeah, true. true. <laughs> um, I think you and I were chatting kind of before the episode. We were talking about how entrepreneurship just was like a natural progression in your in your family, and now you're telling me that you're one of four. So, I guess I'd love to start with you know your family setup, um, your youth uh, growing up in Canada, and what kind of impact that had on you know what would later turn to be uh, turn turn out to be a very successful serial entrepreneur story you know sometimes i see those hashtags on people's profiles that they say serial entrepreneur and i and i cringe because i know that's not the case but <laughs> mashallah you've done some really kick-ass projects that i can't wait to to talk about thank you yeah i think you know sometimes serial has a bit of a negative context <laughs> before words but you know we think uh it, it is uh definitely you know a, a long slug but once you taste entrepreneurship it's really hard to to, to step away from it yeah so you were saying that Growing up um, in Canada, kind of entrepreneurship was always a fab part of the fabric of the family. Yeah, so I I, mean, I grew up. Uh, I was born in in Saudi Arabia, but moved to Toronto at the age of three. Okay. Uh, so you know, my conscious memory is actually in in, in Toronto in terms yeah. of the early parts of my life, and it was just part of everyday life. So you know, my my, my father had his own business, um, and just our household was one which really was a promoter of entrepreneurship. Yeah. Right. So. Things as simple as we'd walk around the neighborhood. We grew up in a very comfortable uh, and, and pleasant environment in Toronto. Yeah. It was not full on suburbia, but you know, a suburban neighborhood. And so you'd walk around when it was summer. Winter was a bit too cold, but uh, you'd see garage sales and you'd see things going on. And there were kids with their lemonade stands, uh, and all the people in the neighborhood would be promoting it, supporting it, helping them out. Um, we would have, uh, in my own household, I would always take all the old books put price tags on them and then go outside of my house and, you know, try to sell them. And yeah. that was always, you know, the, 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 probably the monthly book sale that went on. And my biggest customer actually were my parents, right? And I think that's just a function <laughs> of... The They're rebuying the books the, that they already own. Exactly. <laughs> but it was that positive reinforcement, right? Yeah. Like, if you have an idea, we're just going to get behind it and support it. And that was um, probably something which creates that confidence and delusion that you need uh, to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. Yeah, I like the word uh, you use there, delusion. I think... Getting into entrepreneurship is delusion, na naivete. It's a combination of really not knowing yeah, how sure. challenging the road ahead is going to be. For sure. Did you uh, did you grow up um, Canadian? Did you grow up Arab? Did you grow up Arab Canadian? Uh, I I grew up Arab Canadian for okay. sure. Right. So in in our household we ate you know Arabic food. We yeah. my parents spoke in in Arabic. Uh, but at the same time, and I think it's a function of Toronto, your friend group, uh, your just general lifestyle group is so multicultural. Mm. So if you take a look at a class photo of any of my grades, right, you, you wouldn't know where you are, right? So we've got kids from all over the place. It was very diverse. That diversity was not just in the photo, but mm. it was actually part of the fabric of life. We grew up in each other's homes. Yeah. I had a neighbor from Hong Kong, so we'd, you know, we'd, we'd go to their house and we'd have food from from their place we'd, we'd we'd really get a deep dive into their culture we had friends from italy you know we had friends from all over the world and yeah. you'd really really get to immerse yourself at a young age you don't even realize you're being immersed within these cultures in such a pleasant way uh, and it just naturally i think impacts the way you view things and and and, and your comfort in different uh surroundings as well yeah absolutely and uh you know i for me, I, I we moved around a lot growing up. Um, so we, I was born in California, lived in Saudi, lived in Abu Dhabi, Dubai, and you know, in retrospect, uh, that impact of living uh, in a country that's not your own and living amongst a population that's quite diverse has such a positive developmental impact on on a child's growth. Um, so I can I can relate to that. 
Definitely. And I think it's, again, you don't realize it as a child, right? It's and only in hindsight. As a child, you, you whine. For sure. And, and I wonder even if as parents it's realized or if it's just kind of a fact of life where you're going mm. from one place to another and your children are getting this exposure, right? Uh, and, and sometimes I even see it myself when I'm you know, just picking our kids up and taking them to Toronto for the summer. We're afraid that, oh, are they going to be out of their comfort zone? But in reality, you're doing them such a service yeah. in terms of getting them a whole new exposure of environment, of social groups of, of everything really. And I think it's just a critical part of entrepreneurship to be able to uh, drop into any situation and figure things out. Yeah, yeah. We always talk about uh, being, you have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Like For sure. That's, that's the hallmark of, uh, yeah. of an entrepreneur. Actually, you have to be uncomfortable with comfort as well, right? I think <laughs> it's, it goes all the way down too. Fair, I like that as well. And so growing up in Canada, uh, there's... There's always this, I guess, anywhere where there's an entrepreneurial household that I've uh, come across, there's always this tension between, you know, actually getting a degree and then questioning what is the value of a degree because, you know, there's a lot of examples of people who didn't even go to school and, 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 and did well for themselves. Was there that kind of tension uh, internally between you and yourself or between you and, and your parents? Oh, for sure. So there was always, I, I want to just get on with it, right? Yeah. So um, anytime that, you know, I would see an opportunity, I just want to drop everything and, and, and just sprint in terms of uh, trying to build something around it. And there's uh, an interesting example. Uh, when I was in my second year of university, I was visiting Dubai and this was uh, 2001. So Wi-Fi was, uh, was, was relatively new and it actually wasn't readily available. It was actually barely available in uh, most you know, homes, hotels, offices, you name it. And they had just installed a Wi-Fi network in one of the buildings of my university. And first time I turned it on, I was like, wow, this is magic, right? You're, I've got the internet with no wires. Right? It seems, seems like a, not such a novel thing now, but back then it was, it was you know, miraculous that you, you were able to, to have internet anywhere. Yeah, and I think we have to probably <laughs> clarify for anyone born between like 1992 and now that there used to actually be a dial tone. Yeah, <laughs> and you well, connected the internet. For sure, there was a dial tone. Then you had high speed, which was incredible. Yeah. And then you had high speed that didn't have to be connected. Um, and at that point, you know, at Dubai was, uh, was really getting on the map in terms of tourism. And the number of hotels that were under development or construction were just taking off like, uh, incredibly. And... Uh, I had the idea of setting up a company during my summer holiday visiting Dubai. It was a very hot summer holiday um, to uh, start um, one of the first kind of Wi-Fi focused uh, companies that was trying to provide Wi-Fi to hotels. Right. So, you know, it would be you log in. It was called Infinite Wi-Fi Solutions. I started walking down the path of how do you register a company like this? How do you hire people? Um, a lot of learning on the go. And uh, as the summer holiday came to a sunset, uh, I wanted to obviously yeah. continue with this super exciting opportunity. Um, but, you know, conversation with the parents wasn't nearly as positive. It was like, you should probably go back to, to, to university and get your degree first. And it was, I wasn't very disappointed because I, I knew there were going to be more opportunities. But, you know, you go back and now looking backwards, I'm like, well, what happened if I started that? You know, getting into the, the, the IT sector and getting into uh, tech, you yeah. know, back in 2001 could have gone in any direction yeah. but you know there are these kinds of um internal conflicts of oh what am i doing here am i wasting my time at school but uh when all is said and done things happen in a sequence and you know you you end up finding the opportunities it's um there's a sense of urgency that especially as a young entrepreneur uh i would feel but as you do more of it and I guess become more serial as, yeah. as they say yeah. you realize that you can have the patience and wait again for the right opportunities at the right time and be able to build around those white spaces mm. um, and that's something that you only really develop by you know doing it a few times and uh, succeeding and failing right to, to realize that sometimes the timing isn't right it seems like you have you've had this always had this curiosity of kind of go going and poking and smelling an opportunity and saying i'm gonna i'm gonna jump in where do you where did you develop that uh, where did i that's a good question um i think you know a lot of that again goes back to your childhood your household um and 
the entire ecosystem that that you're surrounded by. And I think initially at a young age, that ecosystem is not your choice. It's it's very um, you know it's it's designed by your parents. It's designed by the education system, uh, your neighborhood, your friends, all these things that you know just happen to be what's around you. Yeah. Um, and then as you as you get older, there's natural selection that that you start you know picking who are your friends. Uh, what are the common interests? What are the conversations you have? Um, how do you complement each other? Uh, what clubs do you join at school? Right, all these different things that end up, you know, creating uh, that. Uh, you know, I think the, the the testing in terms of okay, well, I'm going to sniff that flower, or I'm going to touch it. Is it going to burn, or is it not going to burn? Right, and I think over time, um, you it just it's a natural thing that evolves. Right, I don't think there's a single catalytic event that makes you that way. I think it's it's a it's a series of small steps and small experiences that get you to that point of again delusion right yeah <laughs> that's, that's yeah mashallah you're a father of two so how do you cultivate that that curiosity in children i think it's a lot of it again and it's a cliche but if i was taking my son out for a for a bike ride he's three years old and um he fell off his bike right and he was just learning how to get on a bike yeah. and just as soon as he fell off he just put him right back on it right because yeah. with entrepreneurship like virtually other, many other things yeah. in life you really need to get back on the horse as quickly as possible. And um, it's going to take quite a few swings you know, before you hit the ball. Uh, and, and ultimately, you just can't be afraid of the bat. You can't be afraid of the ball. Uh, and, and cultivating that and having a very positive uh, set of reinforcements. So anytime you know, there's an idea, you know, he wants to beat a drum. They're, they're still very young, so it's hard to really <laughs> you know, see what's going on right, right now. <laughs> exactly. But you know, it's just something as simple as, you know, hitting a drum or liking a song or repeating the lyrics of a song. All those things, you just have to be super enthusiastic. Wow, that's amazing. You're doing such a great job and, and create that cycle of positive reinforcement that's required to create the comfort to be willing to do these things. A really important point is half the battle in entrepreneurship is just showing up so getting back on that horse on days where you're like, I don't want to be here. It's mm -hmm. just showing up. It seems like you've had your fair share of uh, companies you've thought of or startups you pursued. Before we get into kind of what you did in the energy space in, in, in Canada, what was one crazy idea that you had that uh, in retrospect you were like, this is this was just too out there. I think um, I had an obsession with uh, robots at a young age, uh, and one of the things that I really wanted to do was was I, I watched again. I'm dating myself here, but I watched <laughs> the Jetsons. Okay, okay, and I, I, know, I know the Jetsons. And uh, there was uh, there was a robot housekeeper, right? And I thought that's so cool that you know you could not have to put things away. Uh, yourself as robot can do it for you and I uh, tried to design a basically a robot that would move around it was actually two remote control cars yeah. and a set of strings I was, I was quite young so it wasn't the most advanced robotics um, but yeah. ultimately the idea was to put things on this tray and it would throw it back into a garbage bag behind it and you could control it with your with your remote control and I was convinced at a very young age that this you know was was the the I would say you know cleaning mechanism of the future yeah. uh didn't happen <laughs> but you were ahead <laughs> of your time i mean it did happen it, it was just you know happen. 20 30 years later yeah exactly it was a uh, early days of the Roomba, i guess yeah exactly so you end up finishing uni and then you start getting into the energy space eventually in canada that's right and i think i i, I stumbled upon the energy space in, in okay. canada so uh, toronto is a very vibrant resource economy right so the toronto stock exchange um houses probably the largest number of publicly listed um, mining and energy companies in the world. Oh, wow. uh, and it's just a very, very entrepreneurial exchange. So that it, it's called junior mining. And basically, you know, these are small startups looking to find gold mines um, or looking to find, you know, hit whatever resource mines they can find. And uh, it's a the, the, the structure of the market itself and the capital markets um, that surround it uh, all actively promote taking those risks, right? So um, whether that's from a tax perspective or that's just from a uh, access to capital perspective, mm. it, it exists. Yeah. So it was a very good place to be able to 
um, look at the, uh, I'd say, kind of broader domain of energy. Uh, and one thing which we noticed was a white space was um, there were a lot of North American listed opportunities. But if you're to take a look at the year was 2004, um, oil was initially sitting at around 20, $25 a barrel. Uh, but it was clearly, the trend line was clearly moving up, right? Mm. So demand was, was, was proven to be uh, a lot more than you know, was expected. Um, there was a lot of catch up to do in terms of supply. So there was just clearly some kind of trend line that yeah. was looking like, well, this is going to go up, right? And yeah. um, it didn't take a PhD in economics to, to see that trend line. Uh, the other opportunity was looking east, right? So looking at, at the region, specifically North Africa actually at the time, um, there were a lot of smaller energy opportunities in the context of gas licenses and these kinds of things that were available at a lower cost than the Canadian capital markets were willing to pay for it. Yeah, but, but these things aren't, for you now, they're, they're obvious yeah. because in retrospect, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Um, but at the time... A lot of work has to go into finding out this information. And so tell me about that story. I think it, it started with a, uh, a, a meeting with an, actually an old business partner in front of my father's, right? Who yeah. was involved in the junior mining space. Yeah. Uh, and um, he was uh, really, uh, I think, solid in terms of understanding um, how to put together the structures uh, on the mining side of things, right? So building uh, mining companies, mostly focused on Ontario. Um, and then we sat down and had many coffees and many lunches just discussing, well, let's kind of broaden that aperture and see where else are similar things going on. Uh, and we looked at, you know, I think um, oil and gas, right? And said, hold on a sec, things in oil and gas are really taking off. And it's not a designed conversation. It's not a design set of things It just kind of always being curious and looking at multiple data points and just saying, okay, when you put all these together, which way are they trending? And can you find an area where you see value, right? So an arbitrage ultimately. Mm. And that's, that's what we were doing. It was a, a, it's grossly simplifying it obviously, but there isn't, you know, I don't think, and this is typically what I see in entrepreneurship. There isn't a specific formula, right? Yeah. Each company, each opportunity is going to be totally different. This opportunity was energy was going up and the Canadian capital markets were really trying to promote it. Mm. What can we do in that? Right. Mm, and, mm. and what we saw based on what we know, our network uh, and kind of what we could put together in, uh, I would say, the, the quickest way possible, because if you wait, you know, these things cycle. So mm. you, you really need to you need to plant a seed um, relatively quickly. And then pivot along the way to get to where you need to. Mm. Uh, and for this one, it was, well, we could sign up a, a gas license um, and then raise money around that to try to build a company uh, focused on energy. Uh, and that's what we did. So myself and two other co-founders um, ended up founding this, this company in 2004 named Candax Energy. And I was very young, bright-eyed. Yeah, so that was, was, who were your, like, were your founders industry veterans, friends, was it Ammo, you know, so-and-so? That's, that's so the, both were industry veterans. Okay. Um, one, again, on structuring mining deals. The other was a capital markets guy. And I was a, you know, young, naive uh, business development guy, right? Who's going to go out and try to hunt for these um, interesting opportunities. And, oh, can we sign up a gas license? Can we do these things? But it was with, uh, you know, I think that naivety is what probably... Uh, made me believe I can actually get this done, right? Yeah, and I think yeah. it was it was also a perfect storm because over, you know, that two-year period um, when we kind of from founding the company until skip a few steps yeah. IPOing it on, on the Toronto Stock Exchange, um, everything was moving in, our, in, in the right direction. Yeah. So oil prices were, you know, skyrocketing. Um, the capital markets for energy were skyrocketing access to capital. Mm. Um, and we... We're very fortunate because there was a scarcity value. Not many other people were doing what we were doing at that time. And that was a function of doing it quickly, right? Yeah. Again, so if you find an idea, jump on it. Speed matters. Speed matters, for sure. And um, we uh, ended up basically building the company to, to acquire some additional assets because that arbitrage continued to exist. 
and we IPO'd it on the Toronto Stock Exchange in 2006. So within two years. Within two years, yeah. yeah. And that was, you know, it was a perfect storm, right? So everything was going in, in, in the right direction. And it was an incredible first experience, but it was also an experience that was completely unrealistic because it's very rare do you have these windows of opportunity yeah. where everything aligns so well, right? So my first experience was like, wow, this is extremely easy. <laughs> this I was is right. easy. I, can I was right, right? You, all you do is you come up with an idea and then two years later you, you list it, right? Um, yeah. And... Uh, I think the the interesting there, thing there was I got to kind of see many parts of the business, right? So we initially started with just how do you found a company? How do you register a company? What does it mean to bring in shareholders, right? Mm. What what documents do you even need? Mm. Uh, and then kind of see that flow through to more complicated and probably lighter touch from my uh, you know from my perspective and my experience negotiating the actual um, you know acquisition of uh, oil production. And it felt like, you know, from my perspective, for a lot of that time, I kind of felt like I was watching a movie because um, although I was intimately involved in these things, I was heavily relying on the experience of you know, people who had done it before um, and industry professionals and veterans and just kind of being a, not a fly on the wall, but you know, being a, a, a very quiet seat at the table listening to what's going on. And it was absolutely fascinating to mm. kind of s- to see how things were done. And um, the the outcome of it was was incredible, right? So being able to uh, get involved in writing prospectus and then raising the capital on the public, uh, you know, well, initially on the private and then taking it public yeah. was just all such a... Such a surreal experience. Surreal, right? Exactly. And yeah. I look back on it you now. You were like, how old at that stage? 26, well, I started 24 and we yeah. IPO'd when I was 26, yeah. right? So it was very... It was, and, and it all just kind of was a surreal time uh, in, in, you know, in, in the context of um a 24 year old who was just trying to figure out what was going on <laughs> so you had to that you know that that again the cliche of fake it till you make yeah. it there was a lot of faking it in yeah. terms of understanding what was going on one of the questions was hey sammy can you help us write the prospectus i said sure right i mean luckily we had an investment <laughs> bank working with us but sitting and, there and, and people don't re- may not realize you know 2004 2006 the internet itself wasn't as developed as it is now. So I, I can only imagine that going online and trying to Google <laughs> oh a prospectus yeah. was it not was a, the, there was no 101 workshop, you know, on little, Coursera. A hundred percent, very, very little kind of um, available information on figuring out. But again, you just have to not be ashamed to ask questions, right? Mm. And I think that's just a, another kind of uh, thread in terms of, uh, entrepreneurship is you have to be comfortable understanding that people know you don't know everything right mm-hmm. and, and if and, and, and surrounding yourself by people who, who know the right things yeah and, and it's like a puzzle right it's putting all mm-hmm. the different things together mm-hmm. to get to, to, to the outcome yeah it's a it's a critical point that you're you're bringing up which is the ego sometimes can get in the way of people's own development I think you know whether it's with members on the team or whether it's entrepreneurs, many times I see the kind of this ego of, I don't want to put it out there that I don't know X, Y, Z ends up preventing a person's own development or prevents a person from getting to kind of the quote unquote truth. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, that's one thing in your story that's very evident is you never gave you know, uh, a crap, uh, for the lack of a better word, around what people thought in terms of you asking questions. And that's actually built the foundation of your entrepreneurial journey. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's it's actually um, beyond the questions. It's just understanding that what your strengths are and what your weaknesses are, right? And ultimately, either having co-founders or, or early team members who are complementing that. And um, you can't, um, maybe some people, very few people can do it all, but you know, I can't do it all. So just being able to find the right people who can, from my perspective, for example, it's you, people who could focus on certain tasks, more operational individuals, um, and be able to kind of build that infrastructure. You may have the wild ideas and, um, you know, try to define reality and try to get to, try to get to that point, despite it being very, uh, blue sky and challenging. But at the same time, knowing that to get to those steps, it's a thousand little steps, right? So I recently saw this image of uh, somebody climbing a ladder. Uh, yeah. And, you know, it was, there was two pictures. There was one person, it was one, was like just one rung at the bottom and one at the top. 
and one with the, you know, the thousand little rungs that you have to climb. And entrepreneurship, although you're trying to get to that point, it's a thousand little steps, right? It's every day you wake up and you've got these steps, but it's very hard to, to forget about the top of the ladder if you're, if you're, you know, very, very busy in the weeds. So having that complementary dynamic between co-founders uh, and, and being able to have somebody who's reminding you of that you need to take these small steps, but at the same time, somebody else reminding them that the reason we're taking these is to get to the top of this ladder and look at the view or yeah. whatever the case may be is, is, is very, very important. Yeah, and, and you, you know, you said something interesting, which is, you know, no, every entrepreneur's story and journey is different. Um, and then there's also, I've only done one company that's uh, on its on its uh, way to getting executed. Uh, the other company we started in university fell flat on its face, um, my brother and I. But I also have a feeling that every, it's not only every entrepreneur's journey is different, that every business that you set out to create may take a different path. For sure. Right? And I can imagine that the path Environmina took was a very different path than, you know, the first company. A hundred percent. And I think we were, uh, I was very spoiled by the experience of, of the first company, right? So again, so you, you, God had to give you a humbling experience. I mean, you can't just go out and knock it out of the park every time, Sammy, come on. For sure. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and, and, and to be honest with you, I think uh, it was from, it, there, there were a lot of humbling points in the journey of, of Environmina, which uh, we'll get into now. But at the end of the day, um, you know, I think it was actually just, it was the humbling was just actually reality, right? In terms of this is what it takes to build a company. And I think this case study is probably a much better one in what real entrepreneurship looks and feels like and, and the journey um, because of all the, you know, variables and surprises and the duration of it all too, right? So we started Environment in 2007. So uh, maybe I can give a bit of a background on how it started? Yeah, I mean, and you, you, you come off of an IPO uh, at 26. You know, a lot of people would have said, okay, cool. It's time to, uh, to take a break. Um, and uh, you decide to keep going. Yeah, so actually, instead of taking a break, I took a trip to Abu Dhabi in, in 2007. Um, and it was for the oil company. So we were actually just trying to identify more opportunities uh, to, to roll into um, to, to roll into the company. Um, and during a meeting, I learned about this initiative that was being launched um, called the Mustard Initiative at back in, this was actually, sorry, late 2006. And, and back then it wasn't, actually it didn't have a name yet, but it was a renewable energy initiative that was being um, launched from, from Abu Dhabi. And it was very clear kind of looking at trend lines and, and the investments that were being made that when initiatives or investments were being launched, they were, they were being done in, in, at real scale. Um, and at that point, there was virtually no renewable sector in the region. So uh, I traveled back to Toronto, uh, where my roommate at the time was a solar engineer. Uh, and it was January, uh, so it was January 2007. And um, I, his name's Eric, and I said, listen, Eric, it's freezing in Toronto right now. It's very sunny in, in, in the UAE. Um, Good salesman. Yeah, exactly. Do, do you want to, do you want to, uh, do you want to start a, a solar company? Uh, so we brought on a, a third co-founder, Sander. Um, we all knew each other already uh, and, you know, all got along very well, despite having not worked with each other. Um, this was the first time I was really co-founding something with, friends. with close friends, yeah. um, which for us worked out, you know, really, really well. I think we all complemented each other very well, but, you know, I think that's, always uh, an interesting dynamic um I've, I've heard great stories and i've heard horror stories we were very fortunate that um you know that the, the dynamic between all three of us was just very complimentary as friends and as co-founders um but so we we basically uh decided uh by around march that we were going to start a solar company in abu dhabi um raise some capital and in july 2007 uh, Ramadan summer in Abu Dhabi now, so very different than yeah. I was leaving the, Toronto. The, the, in the, summer. The, the story you sold was, you know, transitory to yeah. your roommate. <laughs> exactly, and then he found out the hard way that what summers are like in the desert. It, exactly, and it was actually very funny because um, it, it it was it's funny. It was six months made a big difference in terms of the weather was perfect in Toronto at that time. So we left uh, 
yeah, I think 25 degrees and sunny to, to, to quite steamy weather, but it didn't matter because we, were, we weren't thinking about the weather, right? Mm-hmm. I think you, you go in and you're just so excited to be uh, starting something new. And, and this was very different to me because I, I, I was the co-founder and the CEO of, of, of Enviromina, and the sense of ownership was different. This was, this was truly, I think, our baby and, and also my baby in the, in the context of um, a company that we t- designed and set the strategy of. Um, I had always been very, very interested in technology growing up, and I was very fortunate to have um, you know, my entry into entrepreneurship be in energy. And solar was this really unique marriage of energy and technology, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so it was just really exciting. So every time, uh, you know, you'd wake up, you'd just be super excited to uh, get to work, you know, and, and, and just start trying to build and create something. Uh, and so that was really the, the, the catalyst of Enviromina was the opportunity to build one of the first solar companies in the region, renewable energy companies, I should say. And... Um, and then just try to see, based on that idea, where we're going to build a renewable energy company in Abu Dhabi in 2007, what does that mean, right? So when we first started, we're like, where does solar make the most sense? Well, streetlights, right? A very, very simplistic way of us doing it. But we're like, right now, there, isn't, there weren't the policies or any projects that, that, that made sense for people to be able to build and install solar panels virtually anywhere in the region. But ultimately... Uh, a lot of remote areas required lighting, and mm-hmm. solar was an economic solution to that. So we um, worked very closely with a Canadian company and said we're going to um, try to uh, install this solar street lighting technology in, in the UAE. And that was not our full business plan, but that was kind of the, the low-hanging part mm-hmm. of our business plan in 2007. And um, that was a very quick lesson in pivots. Mm-hmm. Uh, shortly after... Um, Shortly after uh, setting up the company and hiring the initial team, uh, we decided, uh, not decided, excuse me, we, we, we received uh, a tender document for a 10 megawatt solar plant. So just by context, that was, you know, way bigger than anything we thought was going to be built in the first five to 10 years. But it's also, a, you know, kind of a part of the nature of being here. Sometimes things are done big and sometimes things are done quickly. And that really enables um industry or businesses if you could get your ducks in order quickly yeah. and luckily we had already come and set up and we were a solar company and we were the only solar company in town and so we decided and to did this ten- tender come out of kind of the blue or you it's something you guys were heard about you were working on so it was kind of it, it all happened very quickly it was yeah. like one week we're like hey we heard there's going to be a project in, in Abu Dhabi and then you know a few weeks later there was an expression of interest yeah. um, and so we, we expressed our interest in, yeah. in this project and we realized that hey we're a young company we're a new company so we need to partner with some veterans, right? And yeah. I think this comes back to admitting and being comfortable mm. that, that you know, sometimes you need to work with others and, and share the pie or, or, or just be humble enough to say, listen, guys, we, we're, we're here already and we have big ambitions, but to get to that point, mm. uh, we need to work with uh, people who've done it before. So we, we partnered with uh, a very large solar company that was based in China. Um, and it's a very funny story because uh, we... Our name was unknown as, as Environment at the time, uh, and there was uh, a testing facility that was um, that was built in Abu Dhabi to test how solar panels work in the desert. And um, we learned that actually the, the the leadership from that company from China, who we weren't able to get in touch with, were planning on installing and visiting that site on a certain day. And we had built the lights to light up that uh, the solar lights to yeah. light up that testing facility. Um, so we, my, myself, and one of the other co-founders. Uh, coincidentally, happened to be uh, checking the lights uh, while, <laughs> while while they were um, while they were visiting their testing facility, and uh, we introduced ourselves. We literally just kind of ambushed these guys. We're like, "Hey, we're a solar <laughs> company in Abu Dhabi. There's going to be a project here, and we'd love to partner with you." Um, and I, I'm sure these guys were like, "What are these? We're <laughs> what are these like? Yeah, what are these kids? Late twenty kids standing in the middle of a yeah, solar playing testing. around with uh, <laughs> lights in the street." Yeah. Exactly. So, but we, we, we basically, you know, we did not, um, we, we were relentless. We're like, can we please take you guys for dinner? We want to introduce ourselves and the company. And within a week, we had actually, you know, uh, convinced them that we would be a very solid partner for this project. And um, they were the right partner. They were aggressive. They wanted to 
also get a foothold into the region. They understood the, the, the potential of, of the opportunity in the region as well. And uh, you know, fast forward a few months, we end up winning um, the first uh, large-scale solar plant in the region as a company that's just around over a year old. And, and that was just such an incredible, again, surreal experience. Yeah, that's amazing. It went from three guys in a villa. Actually, I probably uh, I missed this part, but Abu Dhabi in 2007 was um, really going through a period of, of huge growth. Yeah. Um, such huge growth. I, I don't know if you were there at the time, but... No, I, w- I was in Dubai, but yeah. Kay. I mean, I, I lived in Abu Dhabi 92 to 98, so I know... Yeah, old Abu Dhabi. Exactly. Yeah. So we basically figured, okay, we're going to open an office. Yeah. There was no, there were no offices available in 2007. There was just such an, I think there was an undersupply and huge amount of demand. So we ended up scouring everywhere, got a real estate agent to show me an old um, ladies' salon, like a nail spa. Uh, it was a villa in Khaldia, in the Khaldia neighborhood, yeah. uh, in Abu Dhabi, called Ulala Ladies' Spa. We walked in, we're like, we're going to have to make this work, right? It was literally the only office that we could find. So we were three guys in a a ladies' spa spa, in 2007 uh, 2007, claiming to be a solar company, right? (laughs) And and so we hired people up into, you know, we converted the spa into a proper office and uh, we hired up, uh, you know, the right team. And again, this was putting the right pieces together. So we we needed a director of engineering. There was Mm -hmm. heavy engineering involved in this. Uh, and although we had some of that skill set, we really needed to beef it up. So we were able to to to, to hire um, the director of engineering from one of the largest solar companies in the U.S. Uh, and and got him to to join on board uh, and put together a bit of a dream team very quickly mm. to deliver this project. And um, over that period, uh, we were able to to raise what I'd consider you know tier one venture capital. So the largest clean tech fund in. Uh, in the States came in and became a large investor in us. The largest clean tech fund in Europe came in and became an investor in us. And we always had our eyes set on getting Mustard to be a shareholder in our business as well, because, uh, you know, we we were there, we were in the, in the eye of the storm and yeah. we saw the opportunity and we really, really liked working with them. And we thought they were uh, they, they would be a great investor in the business as well. We had the discussions back and forth. And after building the project, which we miraculously did on time and on budget for them, um, they were very happy with us. They said, okay, now that, you know, we, we see that you guys can deliver, um, we're happy to participate as well. And they came in as our largest shareholder. So we had a real dream team of, of shareholders as well. yeah. um, and a board that really had experience, mm-hmm. right? So again, we were learning on the go a lot. And that learning was, was made a lot easier and was expedited by having board members and advisors who we weren't shy to pick up the phone and call. I, in hindsight, I actually... I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed with some of the questions I probably asked back then. They're like, how are you getting involved in these projects? Yeah, I was going to ask, but you know, th- there's definitely a dynamic of being curious and asking questions. That dynamic can potentially be altered uh, when you're talking to investors and board members because they're putting yeah. a lot of capital <laughs> behind you. How did that dynamic play out? You learn uh, very quickly who is, as, as board members and shareholders, who are the ones who are um, trying to enable you mm. and who are the ones who are trying to find flaws and kind of report back to, to, mm. to the shareholders and uh, those enabling. And, and now when I sit on a board, my goal is always to be on the enabling side mm. of, of it because ultimately if somebody's invested in the business, they're invested in the business already. Yeah. Um, so you, as I think it's, you know, your responsibility to your shareholders as an investor. And, and that's what I think a lot of these guys did. And they're the ones who long-term ended up being the successful investors and in funds. Um, you have to help guide the outcomes of your investment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, at the end of the day, they, um, the, the questions we were answering were ones which uh, were often naive, but also were very clear that we weren't expecting to, to grow as quickly as we did. Mm. Uh, so, you know, I think it was a function of, it was, it was a function of our uh, rapid success that we were trying to get everything aligned and they were comfortable with it. I, I think, again, there's no such thing as a stupid question. Um, and, uh, and, and luckily, you know, a lot of our, not just team, but board um, shared the same view. And during the, over the course of building out Environmino, what if you know what kind of comes to mind as a period where you know you you look back on it and you're like that was a really 
tough window uh, for me personally leading the company? So we had, you know, I think there was quite a few, but uh, one that comes to mind was uh, around 2011. Um, so if, if, if you recall, 2011 was an interesting time in the region where there was a lot of, you know, things going on mm. in terms of, you know, Arab Spring and, and those kinds of things. So projects in the region virtually came to a halt. Right. And so we went from a very active market to, oh, oh crap, we have, um, you know, pretty heavy team. We had, I would say, probably close to 65, 70 people. So uh, the burn rate, you know, mm. your cash flows, everything as you're doing these projects were quite challenging. We were completing some projects. And also, as we were completing these projects, unfortunately, we were getting paid on time either. Mm. Um, and, and that combination ended up leading to an incredibly... Uh, scary cash flow crunch um, to the point where both myself and the co-founders were actually quietly funding the next month you know and it was a heavy payroll but we were trying to fund internally kind of the, the business to make sure everything was going on but it it came to kind of a screeching halt where it was like you know two three months into it we're like the business although we've got these projects and we're healthy and we're just waiting to get paid um, you know, we, we needed some kind of uh, in, injection of capital. And that's, again, where a lesson that I learned about having the right shareholders. Um, the same shareholders you can pick up the phone and ask, you know, a curious question to are probably the, the same ones who you can go to with a very honest challenge. And mm. I, I, I recall myself and our co-founders, were, we were losing sleep, right? We, we just, it had come to a head. We were finishing our projects, Um we knew that we, you know, should have gotten paid already, but there's just nothing we, we, we could have do, we could have done about it. And we we um, we approached our shareholders uh, on a certain day. I remember just driving up to, to one of the shareholders and, and I would have been said, listen, guys, we're this is the situation. We were meant to have a board meeting a week after. So but we just like, we can't wait until the board meeting. We've just got to to get this forward. This is a situation where in a true crunch. Um, what do we do right like we need we need help and and it was just such an incredible thing they said listen guys we are and the shareholders came together and they said we're you know we're, we're in it with you we understand the context not something that you guys did that got you into the situation it was just a function of um of externalities um and they were able to provide us with kind of a short-term uh facility to get us over that hump right and mm -hmm. it was i remember that sigh of relief that we had right it was just this building up uh, pressure cooker for 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 myself and and for for the two co-founders we just we couldn't take it anyway and i remember that that meeting it's still in my head i remember sitting at the desk and just getting that news from the other side of the table like we'll help you guys out not oh my god you know this is the end of the world you guys shut it down in your head as an entrepreneur you're playing out a million scenarios yeah. of um we're gonna have to shut it down how do you shut it down what do you do uh this sucks because we have so much in the pipeline like and and ultimately getting that um, that, that I guess you could say reinforcement from your shareholders saying you guys were in it with you for the long haul really makes a difference. And that has been a lesson that I've kind of taken forward now is as an investor, which I have been, I'm quite active in terms of investing now, but also as a, as, as someone who is sometimes bringing on board shareholders, you want people who are going to be with you on the ups and downs uh, mm. because there are going to be a number of them across the way for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, um, one thing, so I've been in that cash crunch situation uh, uh, before. Um, sometimes it's just, you almost like want to uh, cuddle up in, you know, baby fetal position and just call for mommy. And, but you still have to get up and show up. And so what goes through your psychology in that, in that moment? So it, it's, uh, so you definitely do when you, you kind of end up in the fetal position. Yeah. The, the good thing is, co-founders that's a big part of what they're there for there, right so yeah. if you're if you're in the same boat and misery loves company right yeah, so and, and, and in this context having sounding boards to comfort you and say hey even if it doesn't work out we've 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 done our best yeah. um is is so helpful because it's a very lonely place yeah um and to have uh partners with you to share in that kind yeah. of loneliness and, and, and even kind of walk through scenarios. Well, mm -hmm. you know, if, if this happens and we do this, or if that happens and we do that, because it's hard, you, there, there's a sense of pride. You don't want to share it with everyone. You're not mm -hmm. going to, sometimes you can't even yeah, from a communication yeah. standpoint, right? Yeah, so, absolutely. So having that kind of 
those confidants that you could work with as co-founders um, to to get through that period is, is really really helpful, uh, and it's it's interesting because in some contexts it makes it hard to get out of bed and start the day. You're like, I don't want to do this, but yeah. in other contexts it's like you jump out of bed. You're like, we've got to get this done with, right? And it's yeah. got to be over with. So it, it it's it's highly scary but highly motivating as well. Yeah, yeah, and it's like the emotions go. Go yeah. back and forth, right? No, you're like sure. one day you're like I've I've con- I've conquered every obstacle that's come our way, so this is not any different. And your kind of mind goes into another gear. And I think the other key component around co-founders is not only having people to share it with. Sometimes, you know, having someone else step up, even even though you're in the CEO position, having another co-founder say, "Hey, listen, we're going through this together," but you know. Here's actually kind of while you're working on this solution, there, there might be plan B that w- that doesn't result in the company closing town that I'm going to go ahead and pursue. And so just having extra hands on deck uh, when you're the CEO makes a ton of difference. 100%. And I think, um, you know, I think leadership by committee mm. is such a, an important thing in the co-founder kind of dynamic as well, because each person not only has their own uh you know skill set but also actually has their own character and mm-hmm. and and you know that mm-hmm. personality ends up playing into the decisions that are made and it often if, if you have the right dynamic ends up kind of making things uh less intimidating and, and and allowing you to go after that problem in maybe a more pragmatic way uh less emotionally right yeah. and, and there, there's a lot of emotion involved yeah but, i was gonna say there's but, definitely a lot of emotion involved but you know sometimes if they say when you're angry take 10 seconds yeah. take a deep breath that anger or that fear you kind of that those 10 seconds are with your co-founders yeah you take that breath and then you go into the yeah. room and i think that makes such a difference yeah and um so you you end up uh exiting environmina um and now you're kind of in act three of of your professional life let's let's call it uh, call it that how do you at that stage kind of make the decision around do i go back and start something else do i want to be on the sideline uh as an active participant we sold environmina in 2017 and actually mm-hmm. funny story it was a uh, we got the offer uh the, the the letter um the offer letter to buy environmina on the second day of my wedding so we had three wedding parties and, yeah. and 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 so that board meeting was actually on the on on the first day of my honeymoon, <laughs> uh, which was interesting in terms of you know your companies being bought. So again, that goes back to co-founder dynamics. Despite me being all the way in Tokyo, yeah. uh, and and you know wanting to be very close to, to to what was going on with with the transaction, you knew it was in good hands with the entire team. Mm-hmm. Um, we had really built a robust team at that mm-hmm. point. Um, but you know, I think one of the things is we, we sold the company and it was a very positive exit for ourselves and the shareholders. And in terms of kind of that journey, we ended up building the first solar plant in the region, but then we ended up doing the first solar plant in seven countries across the region. And it was an amazing experience in terms of um, working very closely with investors, with um, utilities, governments, um, stakeholders in general to, to kind of try to activate an industry. Um, and those, I think those experiences are irreplaceable, right? It's very rare that you, again, get a situation where there's a whole new industry that gains traction as quickly as, um, as renewables have, uh, the, the, although it feels like things take a long time when you, when you look at it backwards, how quickly things went from zero to, um, very, very material amounts of solar installed across the region. It's, it's an incredible thing, right? And, to have been an early participant in that, uh, and maybe having you know been a contributor to to, to yeah. that change and, and and that catalyst is is super exciting. And when you, by the time we had sold, things were more in steady state. And I think when we first started this conversation, is saying a discomfort with comfort as well. Yeah. And and once, uh, you know, I think things had gotten to a certain scale and things had gotten to to a different dynamic. Um, no longer did we have we had new shareholders a new board uh it it it, beca- it felt very different going to work felt like going to work yeah it didn't feel like you know wasn't your baby anymore. it wasn't going to another home right? yeah. like yeah. i would leave home and go home yeah. uh when 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 we fir- when, when we first started this but up in that point i felt like you're you're a guest in your own company mm. 
And that's when you, you know, I think um, that's when I kind of stepped away and said, okay, well, do I have the energy to, to do this again? Probably not, right? Mm-hmm. So didn't swear against it, but thought I want to invest in companies. The whole watching the journey and the, the journey of entrepreneurship is something where I think my experience is can, can really help people mm. in early stages of their business, um, whether that's in, usually focused on sustainability, but, you know, across, I think, mm. you know, multiple uh, domains in the region. Um, and so I uh, started Incubate in 2019. Uh, so we... I, left environment in 2018 and around six months later um started incubate and that was the um i th- you know my, my first experience is looking as purely a uh investments and partnerships approach mm-hmm. right and mm-hmm. it wasn't just investments so the first thing we did in incubate was actually a um a partnership so i had been an f- investor in my friend's fund for years in toronto um and uh i had seen that amazing journey it, it go from you know a friend who had a trading uh, kind of a portfolio and a w- approach to trading that was quite unique. And he scaled that up to a, a fantastic and very successful business and had always been very fortunate to be an investor in, in that business. And then we f- thought, well, why don't we partner together, right? And see if there's a way where, um, you know, we can kind of give an exposure to the region. Mm. Uh, and and it, they're based in Toronto uh, and see if there's a way to work together. And we ended up starting uh, our, our partnership, which got me kind of going back to Toronto more often as well. Uh, and it's very interesting because it, it, it felt like a bit of a rewind of going back to the capital market. So that fund is called Anson and invests in the capital markets, public markets. Mm. Um, so, so it kind of reminded me more of my days in, uh, in, in my oil company where mm. things move very quickly. And, and the, again, you're back in this public market uh, kind of action. Dynamic, the, yeah. You see daily results. So when yeah. you when you build a solar plant, you're building it, but it's a lot of small steps mm. to finally get to that mm. big event, where this had more. I would say you know daily daily feedback in terms of your your, your you see yeah. how you close the day. Yeah. Um, and it's just that's been a really exciting. Uh, I think that's been a really exciting uh, few years so far um, as as a partner with Ensign because we uh, have had just a great track record. So the mm. fund has, has done really, really well. And we have, uh, think, as, as, as an entrepreneur still, right, it's really, really interesting to get a view into um, how the capital mar- public capital markets think. Mm. Uh, because when you start a company, you uh, at least when I start a company, I always think, well, it's really uh, exciting to start, but what does the end game look like? Yeah, right? The end game can be a private buyout. The end game can be... Um, an institutional buyout, the end game is often shutting it down. But then very uh, often now too, the end game, and more often than ever, the end game is public listings, IPOs. Um, And uh, understanding uh, and having that, putting the hat on of understanding what the uh, public market, how it thinks, what sectors it likes, um, what are, you know, some positives and negatives. So for example, uh, I'm somewhat stating the obvious, but you know, recurring cash flows, so mm. long-term contracts, these kinds of things are super attractive to the capital market. So, when we started the the business in 2007, we kind of got that, but now it's you know kind of a prerequisite. Well, how do you ensure that you're getting Locking long-term them, yeah. ARR? Yeah. Um, and um, so, so, starting that partnership was, or having that partnership is really, really interesting mm. for the other things that I'm doing, and that's mm. where I spend most of my time, and that's incubation and investments. So I started Incubate Investments in 2019. Um, and the idea was uh, to be a home for entrepreneurs mm. in, in the context where uh, if somebody has a great idea and they have some early traction and they're looking for just support beyond investment, we can do that. Mm. Not a traditional incubator. It's not like we've got like a program. and yeah. But but just really be a, a hands-on investor if the if, if the entrepreneur wants us to be, or if the startup mm. wants us to be, mm. we can be one. Um, and then do direct investments in, uh, in businesses and startups that are kind of in that domain between technology and sustainability. Mm. Uh, I think sustainability and the climate crisis is going to present itself as one of the biggest challenges we face as, as humanity, mm. but it's also going to be one of the largest uh, I think opportunities in terms of entrepreneurship, businesses, and startups, because we need all hands on deck to try to solve these problems. Mm-hmm. Um, 
what I love is solar. We're kind of there. Like it, it works. It's being installed at scale. Um, but that's one piece of the puzzle. Mm. Right? Energy is one piece of the puzzle, but there's so many other parts. And now kind of having the view of, of an investor, seeing where um, else we can, we, we can, we can make an impact by investing in great ideas and entrepreneurs, whether that's in, um, in vertical farming or that's in, uh, that's in waste and, and composting and that kind of mm. stuff, or that's in uh, water. And that's one which is, you know, I think I was, I've been spending a lot of my time on. It's fascinating. And it's just really exciting to have that, that seat kind of on multiple businesses. Yeah. Um, but again, when you have that seat, it's very strange because hearing the entrepreneurs tell their story, for whatever reason, I'd be like very happy that to see the investments doing well or, uh, you know, the business is doing well as a shareholder, um, you know, ultimately the returns involved in that. But there was always a little bit of jealousy. I'm like, oh, man, I want to be in there again, right? <laughs> you want to um, jump back into the into the cage fight. A hundred percent, right? So, and and, and lo and behold, uh, you know, we're, we're back in it. So yeah. uh, I've, uh, through Incubate, have, have uh, I'll, I'll, I'll get into a couple of the businesses, but yeah. I'll start off with one where actually I was approached by, uh, this is outside of sustainability, but approached by a very good friend who uh, has um, had a great idea for uh, a, um, an app-based uh, members club across the UAE, mm. um, which basically got rid of the actual, uh, which got rid of the club, right? So using all these incredible venues around the UAE, creating experiential, um, creating an, a kind of exper- curated experiential uh, experiences and, and really um, trying, to, uh, trying to, to, to create something which is very unique, not just for Dubai, but I thought ha- actually had the scalability to, mm to be franchised globally. Mm. Um, and so I ha- was involved in terms of incubating that business, which is called Butterfly Social. And um, seeing that kind of go very quickly from an idea to live members in an app was was really cool because mm. what's different than in the solar business is to get to first, I guess you'd say customer, yeah. happens a lot more quickly yeah. in, 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 in consumer. Yeah. Uh, and it's a really, really and cool the feedback thing. loop. The and feedback. Exactly. Yeah. It's yeah. really, really, really cool to, yeah. to see these kinds of um, businesses spark up and it's yeah. inspiring. Right. So yeah. that that's that's um, one of the first companies that was housed in Incubate. So when I listen to you kind of talk about businesses, whether it was your own businesses or whether it's Incubate uh, and the businesses that are there, it's like your your face lights up like a kid in a candy store. Yeah. Um, you know, in theory, you don't need to be doing much uh, work. Um, so I, I guess what keeps you what keeps you going, right? Like what what excites you besides you know your personal life to get up um, and go at it every morning? I think being an instrument of change, right? So just being involved. So think things are, uh, and I've, as I mentioned yeah. before, we've got two kids now, and when you know you t- take a look at what kind of world they're going to be living in, right? And, and I'll bring this back to climate and, and to sustainability. Um, doing stuff that really are, or doing things that will impact in a positive way people's behavior um, to enable uh, a better chance at uh, less of a crisis. Honestly, I think we're in a crisis right now in terms of climate, but you know, reducing that is absolutely critical. And so waking up and having that sense of purpose and probably, you know, down the road when hopefully, you know, when, when our kids are telling their parents, oh, what, what, you know, or start telling their friends what they do, they could say, well, you know, they're, they're help doing something to help the world, right? And, and I think it's a really nice thing, ultimately. And so, you know, that drive of, um, of being part of a change, right, and part of a movement towards uh, a more sustainable future is critical. And that, you know, that, that was really the, one of the big catalysts behind WiseWell. Um, and that's the business that I'm spending the most time on right now. Uh, it is um, basically when I was building the solar company, we'd build these massive solar plants in the middle of the desert and they turn on and they make a huge impact in terms of, you know, carbon emissions and everything. But when you plug in your iPhone, you have no idea that you're doing something sustainable or yeah. something sustainable has happened. Um, and I think a big part of sustainability today is going to have to be the individual's behavior and people realizing um, they need to be sustainable by doing things. Um, and when we look at the landscape of how do you affect the consumer in terms of sustainable behavior, um, 
water was just blatantly obvious. Mm. The way we currently drink water and the system around it is just insane. Like the fact that you, you know, people are filling up plastic bottles in Switzerland or France or Fiji, which is, mm. you know, worst of all, and putting them in, you know, hydrocarbon containers and shipping them across the world, emitting carbon. And then we drink a 500 milliliter sip of water and we're done with it. We discard it and 70% of, or 90% actually globally of plastics are not recycled. Mm. Um, it's just a broken system. So uh, Wisewell was was founded under the, the idea of how do we change the consumer behavior in the way we drink water? How do we eliminate the use of single-use plastics in the household, starting with the consumption of water? Um, and the, the, the answer was we have to make it easy uh, and good-looking. So mm. we, we actually uh, spent a lot of time designing uh, a really the way Dyson kind of did something for the fan, we wanted to do for the water cooler. Mm. Um, and we wanted to make sure that there was no installation and it was super simple. Uh, and so we designed and now we're about to launch actually in the US, um, our um, our company and our first product. And that is uh, the, the driver behind that as an entrepreneur is having this feedback cycle of change at the consumer level in something which is so obvious and to be frank, a little bit easy for us to change the behavior. Um, so ha one of the challenges you've, we, we've had with um, sustainability and renewables is there was always a green premium. If you want to do something environmental, environmental, it's going to cost you more money. Um, this is cheaper from day one, right? Mm -hmm. So it, it's, again, it reminds me of 20 years ago when I was starting my other business, right? It's a perfect storm. Um, tap water quality is pretty scary in most parts of the U.S. and globally. Um, plastic waste is very obviously a massive issue. Uh, and technology has gotten us to a point today where there's a straightforward solution to do that. And we're just trying to implement that solution uh, to as many people as possible. Right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's really, really exciting. And that, that, you know, when I wake up, I'm looking at my emails and just super excited about what are we doing for our launch? What's going on in terms of we just started our performance marketing. So we're actually getting the feedback. So every day there's hundreds of people signing up for our newsletter, right? And it's just a really yeah. exciting place to be in again, for sure. Yeah. Um, that purpose that you have now, which is that um, desire to make a lasting impact in the sustainability space, how has that purpose evolved? Like if you think back to Sammy of, you know, 24 years old, how has that purpose statement kind of changed with time? Sure. So I think I'm, uh, you know, Sammy of 24 years old started a, an a, a oil and gas company. So definitely <laughs> massive change in, 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 in that and priorities, in, yeah. in priorities. But, you know, I think it was um, it, as, as you get, I think as, as you gain experience and to be honest, as you, uh, after I had my, my two kids, um, I really started, you know, thinking about that what kind of world they're going to live in, right? And what it's going to look like. And if you if you take a look at trend lines, um, the, the, the trend line of uh, waste or, um, you know, change in the climate or uh, you kind of name it, the, the food system, all the pressure that's going on in terms of demand, everything has to, has to shift transformationally. Like mm. our behavior that we're used to now, mm. I'm pretty sure our kids are going to look back and say, how did you guys, you know, F how did you guys up. manage yeah. to do this, right? So... Being an, again, being an instrument of that change is, is, is very, very exciting. And technology allows us now to enable it in ways we couldn't have imagined before, right? And I also think kind of the whole ecosystem allows us to do that. So before, if you came up with a cool idea for an installation-free water machine, you'd probably have to spend years trying to find a distribution network and um, market it at trade shows and do all yeah. that. We're literally, you know, putting advertisements on all the different social media platforms, direct to consumer digital marketing, and the infrastructure to go from uh, factory to customer all exists today in a way which is way more simple than, than it was even five years ago. And I think leveraging that technology to try to change consumer behavior for something that's more sustainable, you know, to reduce single-use plastics, to um, eliminate you know the carbon footprint of that whole sector is, is is super exciting yeah i mean i think hearing kind of three different stories um one thing you've 
definitely have a keen eye for his timing is kind of being in the right place at the right time and being there even probably before the trend line takes off and you know one thing that's inspiring for me is you almost say it's so matter of a factly you know the trend lines we're saying and you say as if it's common sense but most of these things are really only common sense in retrospect and so you have that ability to see things early which is which is amazing and uh, and good on you man thank you very much i think it's often a first mover advantage though and often it's a first mover disadvantage right so you you can be a bit too early yeah and i mean think about your um um housekeeper robot i mean you're just yeah. <laughs> 20 30 years early yeah, exactly. great idea and you know you know timing is a tricky thing because i think in to your to your point um you know one of the biggest uh factors that determines the success of a business is is timing right and when i say timing it's all a big component of timing is is the underlying infrastructure ecosystem there to allow you to succeed is consumer behavior market uh, acceptability of the product ready and so getting timing right if you do it once you're lucky you know potentially but you've managed to do it twice inshallah you're right about about the third time and so you know listening to you here i I think that's kind of the biggest you know aha moment for me is um kind of your ability to get things right uh on on timing so so that's amazing so i've heard you say a couple of things today uh, as we're wrapping up um i kind of heard you say that you know, with the right level of curiosity, you know, there's an ability to identify opportunity. Um, one thing you didn't say, but I, is clear to me, is having these massive dreams and ambitions that that you pursue, regardless of all the potential impossibilities of why that idea isn't isn't a good one, is is something that's really in your DNA. Um, and one thing you said a couple of times was, you know, delusional thinking can really help get you started. You know, I've, I'm leaving this conversation with goosebumps and, uh, and being inspired. So I really appreciate you taking the time to share your story. And um, I wish you nothing but the best of luck for you, but then I guess for all of humanity and trying to solve some of the biggest challenges that we'll face on a sustainability front. That it, thank you, thank you very much, and you know it's it's an honor to be on your show, and and uh, I love the fact that there is now you know the opportunity for entrepreneurs to tell a story. Uh, it's something that we have been looking for here, and uh, good on you for starting this podcast because this is an entrepreneurial journey in itself, right? So yeah, definitely. Thanks, so man. Thanks, so thank you. Thanks.